Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, you could call it a grand experiment inspired by our recent interactions with community. I just got back from Scale 14, and Alan is off being Mr. Fancy at a BSD conference, so we thought, why not spend an episode on the community? This week, we'll cover some of our favorite feedback that's come into the TechSnap program, and much, much more. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. I was streaming this episode live on January 14th, 2015. Trust me, to a packed chat room. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream is powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Over at ScaleEngine.com, you should go check that out. My name is Chris, and this week, there is no Alan Jude. Well, there is actually lots of Alan Jude coming up, just not at this very moment. Something new for the TechSnap program, because Alan and I are trying to travel a lot more and go out to conventions, make those person-to-person connections, and establish those connections in the community, uh, which has tremendous benefits for the show, Uh, but it also always means we have to double record and sometimes even triple record shows, and that's just not a really super sustainable long-term approach. So we thought, wouldn't it be cool to come up with a way to sort of look at some of the content that's been helpful to TechSnap audience members and re-feature that in a way that doesn't feel derivative or in a way that doesn't feel like something you've already seen before. And so that's what we're going to do this week, is we're going to go into our feedback segments and pull out some of the cornerstone questions that have been sent into the show that answer a lot of the common ones uh, that would be great for you to link to people or honestly just great topics for you to catch up on just in general. So I think it's going to be a really good addition, and it's a way to give you something kind of new and different while we're on the road. And since it's just me and I have a little extra time with you, I thought maybe this just literally came in as I was going on air. I got a box uh, from uh, UPS. They just dropped it off, and I just opened it before I went on air. And I I know it's gear for my trip to scale, but I haven't actually looked yet. So I thought maybe I'd go just really quickly go through some of the new gear that just came in for my trip to scale, which is why why we are doing this uh, feedback special edition of of TechSnap. So uh, one of the things that I got here is uh, a battery uh, charger for the GoPro. I love the GoPro. I have the Hero 4. It is a great camera for certain things, but the thing is, it it just burns through the battery. And so while we were at System 76 um, in November, I was constantly juggling battery problems with the GoPro. So I got a charger for the GoPro. This is pretty cool. It's from SmartTree. And uh, this is a dual suction cup mount. For the window, so we're going to be taking the rover down uh, Highway 101 to go to uh, scale, and I, I want to be able to shoot some really good footage of that. So because it's just a beautiful drive, so I have this dual suction cup mount that goes on the windshield that the GoPro will go into. So that just arrived as well. So that's pretty cool. And then, of course, last but not least, you got to have storage. So this will be a 64 gigabyte SD card that's dedicated to scale, and that's actually a, a great way. I love to do this. Whenever possible is if I can just dedicate an SD card to an event, that's ideal. I don't always do that, but whenever I can, I like to say, okay, this SD card, that's everything about scale. That SD card, that's everything about System76. It, it, it works really, really well for me, and with the prices, this here with 64 gigabytes and a reader, uh, to put it just like you just plug the micro SD uh, into the little reader that it comes with, USB 3.0 reader, the whole thing is only a, you know, uh, 25 35 bucks off of Amazon. 
or 64 gigabytes. Isn't that really something? I mean, it's just tiny storage, 64 gigabytes, just absolutely tiny. I just, I think that is really super neat. It's 95 megabits a minute. So this is the setup I'll be using to capture uh, stuff on the go while I'm going down to scale. And uh, <laughs> I figured it'd be fun to unbox it with you guys since it just arrived right as we're uh, getting started. So let's jump into some of our first feedback. This is something I think that a lot of you might remember if you've been watching the TechSnap program for a while, but if you're new, I'm, I'm really excited to show this segment to you. It was my first home server. A total noob emails into the show. He says, I'm planning on setting up a home server running Debian. I already have some drives, but I have some basic questions like CPU and build, and we jump right into it. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of our website or even better. Starting a thread in our subreddit over at links.techsnap.tv like our first submitter this week did, Alan. It was uh, Vincent Baz. Vincent Baz. Vincent, he's got a V, a B, and a Z in his name, Alan. I mean, come on. Okay. That's rough. All right. Uh, this is his first home server. He's got a noob question. He says, hello, everybody. I've been watching the show and reading Reddit for a long time, and I'm loving it. I'm planning to set up a home server. I've already bought four terabyte drives, and I'm planning to set them up with a RAID 10. Server will be running Debian, and the main purpose will be an own cloud server, rsync, and torrenting. Uh, we have a home at home. We have our ISP router, and we can't change it. We need the Wi-Fi. My question is, should I connect the server to the router, having it run as a Wi-Fi hotspot, or should I buy a switch with Wi-Fi? Those are beginning more and more common. I also want I also want to spend as little as possible, and the drives have already been quite expensive, even though I bought them on sale. And uh, he's got a few other questions in there, but I want to tackle that Wi-Fi <coughs> question because I had this problem for a while, where I had a router supplied uh, by, by my ISP that was like a, it was, it was like a Fios router that had a coax connection, and I thought I was locked into that sucker. Um, and that just wasn't the case. I, I, would, I would hold, I don't know about doing Wi-Fi on his server. I would just well, pick this up. Is, uh, I didn't understand how the Wi-Fi and the router got, got into this at all. Well, if he like, is he meaning it, I guess he's wondering I, if he should set it up as a router, his, server, his home server. I don't his know why he would need to do that. Because his overarching goal is to, he wants, he goes in here and says, minimal power usage. He wants just the minimal amount of devices running at his house. Oh, okay. Well, you know, the little router probably doesn't use that much. That's my, that's my thought, too. It's like I'm buy a little spoiled by router. cheap power, so I don't worry about it. I know. Um, so, yeah, you could replace it possibly if, you know, the line coming in is, is correct. But, well, if it's one of those router modems, then no, you can't get rid of it. Right, because it's the modem too, right? Uh, if you have a modem that you could just replace the router with the server, you could do that. But if it's a modem and a router in one box, like is often the case now, then yeah, you're kind of hosed there. Yeah, I would just connect the server to the router, and it's with also, the Ethernet, because wireless is bad. Yeah, it's also just <laughs> a pain in the ass. Like, oh, sometimes you got to restart the Wi-Fi router, and when yeah. it's your server. Well, the, <laughs> There's a re I, my file server was my router for a very long time, and I switched to having a PFSense box separate because it was like, well, I would like to upgrade the ZFS on this, but I don't want to lose my internet connection in the middle of doing it, mm -hmm. especially since if something goes wrong, I won't be able to go on the internet to fix it. Yeah, yeah. And Alan, are you ready for our first email? Sure. It comes from email, I believe is how you say it, an email from email. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said he wants, he wants to talk about ZFS choices. He says, hi, I have some questions about ZFS. I watched the show since it started and I've used ZFS ever since. Very nice. Yeah, okay, here we go. We have a pretty tight budget, with, we have to, which in with we have to buy some 
SAN or NAS hardware. Uh, he's like, you know, I mean, basically a regular computer with ZFS. Uh, it'll be free NAS or just free BSD with CFS manually configured. The hardware is a commercial-grade motherboard with an i7-370 3.4 gigahertz CPU, 32 gigs of RAM, 4x4 terabyte Western Digital Red Drives, and, a f- and 4 1 terabyte Western Digital Velociraptor 10K RPMs. Now, if he does his, if he does his ZIL, he's going to have two 30 gigabyte Corsair SSDs. And if he does an L2 ARC, he'll have them on a one 256 gigabyte SSD. So here's his question. How should we configure this for our purposes? We're going to use the 4x4 terabyte drives as the mass storage in a RAID 5. That is backups, templates, ISOs, and stuff like that. We plan on using the 4 1 terabyte drives as a storage for VMs in a RAID 5. Do we need or want the L2 ARC on a VM storage or mass storage? Do we need or want a ZIL for the VM storage or mass storage? And is a ZIL size of 30 gigabytes big enough? Should we just buy an extra ZIL and L2 ARC so we can accommodate both pools? What do you think, Alan? It's thick. Yeah, uh, that one's interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, they didn't really separate what hardware they already have and what they want to buy, but it sounds like they already have all of this, and so yeah. Yeah. Um, for the ZIL, you only need that on workloads where you have what are called synchronous writes, which are writes where the system call won't return until the data is all the way safely on a disk. Uh, whereas most writes are asynchronous. We say, write this down, and, you know, you hope it gets there. And it's usually, like, with ZFS, normally it gets there after five seconds, right? So ZFS will batch up all the data in RAM and write it out every five seconds. So it gets nice, long, contiguous mm. writes that are much, much higher performing than scattering it all over the place. Um, so, yeah, you only need a Zill where you can have synchronous writes. Okay. Uh, virtual machine images are synchronous writes okay. most times. Okay. So, yes, uh, if you have a Zill, it should, you should definitely have a Zill on the one where you're going to have the virtual machine images actually running off of. Okay. Uh, the one with the backups, you probably don't need it there. Um, 30 gigabytes for a Zill is a big enough. Uh, that's about all you need. Because uh, basically what it's going to do is when one of those synchronous writes comes in, it's going to write it to the SSD, return, let the, you know, the performance stay high and continue, and then it will, as it can, flush that data out to the real hard drives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, 30 gigs is more than enough. Okay. Uh, what I'd, I would probably recommend mirroring those. Um, ZFS is more resilient now, but it was kind of, you know, if, if one of those uh, Zills fails, then data that's been written to it but not to the other hard drives uh, would be lost, and you don't want to lose data, especially on running VMs. Yeah. Uh, so if you set those two Zill up as a mirror, then that would be better. Um, of course, you know, if you really wanted to have a Zill for the, uh, the other pool that was going to be have all your backups, then you might use one on each. But So I know this is probably not a, a concern. But remember how you've told me, um, you know, if you fill a, a ZFS file system up, you can have performance issues, right? Yes. So his, his SSDs are 30 gigs total. Right. Uh, that, that's for the Zill. That's not the file okay, system. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Okay. Yeah. So it doesn't apply to the, to the ZIL. No. Uh, basically, the reason for the performance problem is the fragmentation and everything caused by copy-on-write. Well, the Zill isn't copy-on-write. Gotcha. Uh, well, it kind of is, but the idea is that you're, you're writing to it and then flushing it out to the real disk and deleting it. Uh, so, and the SSD doesn't suffer as much from a penalty from seeking all over the disk, right? Right. Whereas right. a spinning hard drive does. Okay. Um, so, yeah, uh, for the L2 arc, a read cache is always good. Uh, so you, 
uh, but again, you know, if the one, if the second pool with, you know, the four four terabyte drives is just for backups, unless you really really need to read that backup really quickly, you know, the the L two arc is mostly going to help you with reads where you're reading the same thing over and over again a lot. Uh, so it basically lets you have a bit more stuff in your your cache. Uh, so I imagine it's most useful on the one hosting the VMs as well. Mm, okay. You know, if your workload is right mostly for the backup stuff, then an L2 arc isn't really going to do you much good. But if it's, you know, running VMs, then an L2 arc is probably quite useful, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, and the nice thing is you can just add more uh, L2 arc drives and it'll stripe across them later. Uh, so it's easy to add more later. Yeah. You know, um, um, so he's got, so, and he's got, you know, 32 gigs of RAM. That's plenty. i7, 3.4 yeah. gigahertz. That's plenty. You can always add more RAM later, which is a nice thing too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It's a, the easiest thing to add in a ZFS system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He's in an interesting situation where he's going to end up basically having two pools, right? This one that's four, four terabyte drives right. uh, for mass storage. And then one where it's the four, one terabyte Raptors with two SSDs and then the are two SSDs for a Zill and one for the L2 work. Uh, the thing you have to watch with the SSDs is the uh, endurance. Um, the Zill is going to get written quite a bit, uh, but I think it's the L2 arc that's really going to uh, get thrashed because, you know, basically you're going to be writing to it constantly. Uh, there are some sysctls in FreeBSD that you tune to set uh, a maximum rate of how often to write to it to basically make sure you don't wear out the SSD unnecessarily. You could say, you know, only ever write out I think the default is 16 megabytes per second. Or no, sorry, the default is 8, which you probably want to increase to get performance. Uh, but it won't write out more than you know, 8 megabytes per second to the SSD um, to avoid wearing it out too quickly. Because otherwise, you know, every time you read something, it's going to try to write it to the L2 arc uh, to cache it. Whereas more often you say, you know, just cache the first bit of everything, and then you know, the algorithm adapts over time to learn what's actually popular and what's not. There is a lot to consider when you're building this thing, but the power yeah. is totally worth it, and the flexibility yeah. is awesome. Um, and you know, you could go the route I did, and you get yourself a free NAS Mini. I, Alan yeah. and I are both big fans of iX Systems, and they've just recently tossed the free NAS Mini up onto Amazon. How about yeah, that? Yes, so you can now buy it from Amazon instead of... Uh, and if you, you use, if you use our yep. affiliate link or our extension for the browser, you can support the network while you get a free NAS Mini now. Yep. And they have <laughs> uh, lots of different versions. They have... Uh, uh, starting out with the one with no drives, and then they have uh, different combinations of drives, and they also have the FreeNAS Mini Plus, which has an i5 instead of an i3, Ooh. and twice as much RAM. Ooh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, there you go. There you go. Very nice, and that's just going to be... You know, the great thing about that is that's a FreeNAS box that's just going to run and run and run and get updates, well, too. The, the biggest thing is that all the hardware has been relentlessly verified to work perfectly with FreeBSD. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. Right? Whereas when you're building your own thing, you know, sometimes there's always the question, does this work, does that work? Uh, and that's, that's why I've started, you know, Scale Engine buys all their servers uh, from there now, just because, you know, we know that it's going to work. Yeah, they do some uh, of the Like, you remember when we built you. the very first one, we, we bought that Adaptech RAID card uh, because it said on the box it would work, and then it didn't. That yes. was, yes. that was, yeah. Yes. Building it yourself, there was always running into these, these problems of, you know, oh, there's a bug in the driver, blah, blah, blah. Well, IX tests all this stuff and they have, you know, actual vendor relationships with places like LSI. So, you know, they can get custom debugging done if they really need to. 
So, uh, all right, Alan, ready for the next question? Yep. Comes from Ivan, and he has a few sysadmin questions. He says, hi, Chris and Alan. I wish that someone introduced me uh, with Linux systems earlier. Now I have so much catching up to do, including Jupiter Broadcasting shows. So I have so many questions. Google usually helps, but people, let me tell you something. You can nag all day, but nothing beats Alan's basically thorough explanation and Chris's pragmatic view. Here are some questions that bug me the most. Number one. Is there some nice open free web GUI for managing open VPN server connection tracking issue and revoking certificates? Uh, and number two, what could I use for aggregating two ISP links besides PFSense? Maybe aggregating might be the wrong term. He says okay. he has two uh -huh. ISP connections, a CentOS right. box, a router, and two LANs. And uh, he's uh, looking for some advice. Yeah. So for the first one, I don't know of anything like that. Um, my OpenVPN server is mostly just for me. So well, it has like sense, three certificates. But... Oh, well, um, does it provide... Like, does it let you see how many, which people are logged into the VPN right now? Yeah, I think so. I think okay. so. Well, I, it, like, it provides a bunch of different VPN uh, protocols, too, not just OpenVPN. Yeah. It, it has, like, a L2PT and a PPTP, although you shouldn't use PPTP. Um, so, yeah, I don't know of a GUI that really does. I don't know that OpenVPN really exposes that information that in a, in a usable fashion, mm, really. Mm. Um, hmm. I'm not that experienced with it, honestly. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, normally your VPN, if you're going to have a lot of people using it, is going to be as part of some kind of router, and PFSense is the nicest gear you're going to find for that. Yeah, and I guess he's trying to maybe implement it on CentOS, kind of based on his... Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so I have no idea what to do for that. Uh, for the connection, for trying to use basically two WAN connections, uh, two different internet connections, basically there's no way to do it properly uh, without, you know... An, two different ISPs, you know, if you're going to have real routers and have a, an AS number and, and do it like, like real internet routing. Uh, and since you're not going to get that for your home connection, basically you're down to just having the NAT on uh, either a multi-WAN router or, you know, any Linux or BSD machine with multiple NICs. And what you do is you say X percent of all outgoing sessions use this uh, um, NAT instead of that NAT. Mm. So basically you set up two separate NAT tables ah. and you basically say half the connections go off this line and half the connections go off this line. Right. You can run into issues with that though. Uh, you basically, you have to do some kind of um, maybe you do it with a hash or something so that when you connect to a certain website, you always connect from the same IP. Because if you're loading pages on a website or something right. and your IP suddenly changes, it's likely to log you out or throw errors or something, uh -huh. right? Uh, because you're, basically your IP is, is going to be changing uh, on different requests if you don't have some kind of so, I mean, I'm sure, like that Some places like Gmail might even flag it as like a hack attempt or something. <laughs> yeah, if, if, you know, if you're reading your email and you click the second email and all of a sudden your IP is different, uh, then it could cause problems. Yeah. So, uh, and basically you're not going to get, if you're trying to do a download of a single file, you're not going to get both speeds put together. There's basically no way to do that unless you're using something that has uh, multi-segmental downloading. But again, normally you're going to have it set up to, when it makes an outgoing connection to a certain address or even range of addresses, it locks it to one of the two connections and any more will keep going over that one. And then 
you know, connections to a different website might go off the other connection. And so basically with that setup, if you're downloading multiple files at once, you might get the speed of both connections. Although, you know, if you have 50-50, you only have 50% chance that you're not going to have both files downloading over the slower connection of the two. You know, I guess you could always do something like, I'm going to make Skype calls out of this connection, and I'm going to do my torrent downloads out of this connection, and the two won't it's interrupt kind each other. Of, I, I did something like that. Uh, basically, when I was in college, there was a cable connection shared between everybody that lived in the house, uh, and it often got slogged down pretty badly. Yeah, sure. So I had a DSL connection that I used for my internet and my gaming, <laughs> but I had a virtual machine that <laughs> ran my torrent client and clever. that was routed over the shared cable. There you go. Very clever. Or Very clever. Uh, later on, that was actually a full physical machine that was replaced the Linksys router with uh, a full FreeBSD machine. And, you know, I routed a bunch of stuff. I would do my big downloads on that while gaming on my DSL connection. You smell that? It's refreshing to have some Linux around here from time to time. You know what else is refreshing? My friends over at Ting. I'm going on three years of Ting service because it really is finally mobile that makes sense. And I love to vote with my wallet. Go to techsnap.ting.com to save $25 off your first device. And if you have a Ting-compatible device, and you might, because I got CDMA and GSM networks, then you'll get $25 in service credit, which would have paid for my last month in service. In fact, the average monthly bill per device on Ting is $23. They just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add them up in whatever bucket you fall into. That's all you got to pay. They just don't... They, it, I mean, like, okay. If you don't make a call, you don't pay for it at all. For the minutes. It's brilliant. If you are on Wi-Fi and you don't use a lot of data, you don't pay for it. If you're using Hangouts or Telegram or Snapchat or Slack and you don't get a lot of text messages, you don't pay for it. And when you do, that's the time you pay for it. It just is really straightforward, very simple. TechSnap.ting.com. No contract, no early termination fee, total kick-ass dashboard that kicks all of the other wireless vendors out. Just, just kicks it out. I mean, it is such a good dashboard. Uh, in fact, they've got a, if you go to techsnap.ting.com, they've got a video here you can watch on it. And, I mean, it is like, look at, you think, oh, that's a computer animation. That's a fake dashboard. That's, that's like their, that's like their, ooh, cool hipster video version of it. No, it is actually what the dashboard is like to use. It's very simple, very straightforward. You can add nicknames to your device. You can turn individual aspects of your service on and off or just turn the whole device off, which is great for MyFi's. Just awesome for my files. Or if you got kids you're giving phones to, it's great for that. TechSnap.ting.com. Go check them out. Go get started. Go see what I've been talking about. So when I switched to Ting, it was like, you'll probably, I, I did the, if you go to TechSnap.ting.com, they have a savings calculator. It's like, you'll, you'll probably save around $1,000 a year. And now when I go through it, it's like, oh, you're going to save $2,000 a year. Because what I realized was, as I had, I was paying for a thousand text messages, even though I only use like a hundred of them. So what's really great about Ting is you go to their savings calculator and you plug in like what you actually use, you actually use, and I, I tell you, it is, well, it's a little eye-opening. Uh, and it'll, it'll compare it to other providers. You can also plug your information in there. I, I think after three years, uh, I've, I've probably saved nearly $2,500. Maybe a little more than that, switching to Ting. That would be a conservative number. So I would just encourage you to check them out. They are a great company. They're backed by a great company, Two Cows. They are super savvy. And also, they have, they're great. They're tastemakers. They have great, great, great opinions and great, great app picks. Check out Kyra with her app pick this Get week. Get a fresh take on the podcast experience on today's Ting Download. iOS 
Chris already has a pretty competent podcast player. Competent being the nicest word we could find. It does the job and nothing else. With that said, if you're looking for a more refined podcasting experience, you want to check out the newly free Overcast. Like all good podcasting apps, you can add your favorite shows, download, or stream them. Likewise, your listening progress syncs across devices. Nothing new here. Overcast Edge comes from a handful of helpful features exclusive to the app, like Smart Speed, which will speed up the podcast without distorting the audio and remove silences in an effort to save listening time. Or Voice Boost, which equalizes audio so that it sounds loud and clear no matter the listening environment you're in. Smart Playlists allow you to prioritize and sort shows based on the rules you specify. And if you dig deeper into the app, you can adjust the skip time, auto-download your favorite podcast over a Wi-Fi connection, get show recommendations from Twitter, and many more power user features. And hey, there's even an Apple Watch and CarPlay version of the app. For the 10 of you who have those. Overcast <laughs> is free for iOS. And if you're feeling generous, the app has a tip jar option within. Though, that's up to you. Speaking of patronage, why not like this video, subscribe to our channel, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time. TechSnap.ding.com Overcast is... It's my podcast catcher. I love it. And I have it set up the same way. I get notifications when a new podcast comes out, and then it just uses Wi-Fi. If I'm on it, just download it. And when I get in the car, it's ready to go. Also, check out the Ting blog. They talk about a lot of things. One of the things they talked about is the Consumer Reports annual cell phone service report. It came out for 2015, and guess what? Ting is dominating the incumbents once again. That's a huge vote of confidence for Ting. So go to techsnap.ting.com. And a really big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And also, if you have an iOS device, uh, iPod, iPad, uh, I would definitely recommend you check out Overcast. Since it's now free with the latest version, it is a really good podcast client. And not all podcasts have audio like TechSnap. And so if you ever have been driving down the road and having a hard time hearing what they're saying, uh, Marco, who is the creator of Overcast, built in... Uh, like essentially voice boosting EQ, you one button and he EQs up the mids and all those kinds of things and, and applies a compressor as well and, uh, and, uh, and other things. And it makes it much, much, much easier to understand. Uh, so it's a nice feature if you ever struggled with other podcasts, audio quality, I'm sure. All right. Well, you know, when we're doing a feedback special, there's going to be a lot of ZFS. We've already done a little ZFS and now we've got to do a little more ZFS. But the question comes really is how sticky is ZFS when you're doing virtualization? Uh, so this is where our next question takes off. All right, Alex writes in with our first ZFS question of the week. Hey, Alan and Chris, love the show. Been watching since episode four and have not been able to stop. I have a question regarding ZFS and virtualization. I'm currently running ESXi5 VMware server at my house. So I'm gone for two weeks, and you're back to saying ZFS. Oh, you're right. Sorry. You're right. Sorry. Sorry. You know what? It's all that, Derek and, that dirty American upbringing of mine. I know. It's, I'm, uh, I, was, I tried very hard to get Matt Ahrens to say <laughs> ZFS just once. I feel like it's got more punch. I feel like Zed gives it more weight. Yes. All right, so uh, he says, I have a question regarding my ZFS and virtualization. I'm currently running ESXi VMware server at my house. Here's the specs. I love it when somebody's got an ESXi server. He's got a, a 3.4 gigahertz i7 processor, 16 gigs of RAM, six hard drives, 220 gigabyte drives in a, in a mirror, 500 gigabyte standalone data drive, two terabyte Western Digital black, and a two terabyte Western Digital green, including a 1.5 terabyte Hitachi. So he's got some drives. He says, I'm thinking about... There's lots of random drives. Apparently. I know, yeah. I'm thinking about switching my file server to FreeNAS with a ZFS array, but I'm running everything under ESXi. So I'm not sure how ZFS will like that. What are your thoughts about virtualization? Um, I'm not quite sure I follow yeah, your question. Kind of, 
we've talked about it before. Uh, he's, I think he's talking about running FreeNAS on top of ESSI. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about it before. In general, I'm not a big fan of doing it. There are people that do it. Uh, but, you know, ZFS much prefers to talk to the real hard drives. Uh, so, you know, most people set up with ESXi would be a free NAS box in the corner with hard drives. And then the ESXi connects over iSCSI and all the virtual machines live on that instead of living in the ESXi box. Uh, but, you know, if you only have one box, then, you know, you can do it that way. Uh, so you, you can run the, the free NAS as a virtual machine in ESXi, uh, but in general, I don't recommend it, right? ZFS wants to talk to the real hard drives, not to virtualization. Uh, and, and it's a little so, more deeper than, a than your average file system. Like, it's doing more stuff, right? Yeah, and, and like, when, when it does a, a, a sync, like, when it flushes and it says, you know, this data needs to be on the real disk, you want it to be on the real disk, right? And when something's getting in the way, like the virtualizer saying, oh, I'm going to ignore that for performance reasons. You're kind of negating then, some of the benefits of ZFS. Yeah, you, you, can, you can cause problems. Huh. Uh, in general, you know, it'll probably work, but I, I don't like to do it that way. So one question he has, which I've seen a lot, is I've been getting, I've been getting a lot of Drobo versus uh, Z ZFS questions. In fact, I, I covered one on last, last week. And uh, Alan, the question that I kind of danced around was, they asked, how hard is it to add uh, mismatched drives? And I said, well, you have your storage pool, and then you would maybe like create a mirror of two new drives or a single drive and add to that pool, but then you could be adding some sort of point of failure if that one drive dies. So is that right? Like if you have... Right. So, so in ZFS, it's, so you have the pool, and yeah. the pool consists of one or more VDEVs, or virtual devices. A VDEV can be a single drive, although that's not recommended. Okay. Uh, a mirror, which is two or more disks that are identical, uh, or RAID Z of any kind, mm -hmm. uh, right? One, two, or three, or whatever. Uh, and then you can have more, one or more of these VDEVs. So if you create a RAID Z1, which requires three or more disks, right? And one of the drives is redundant. Uh, when you create a VDEV for RAID Z, you can't change that VDEV. Uh, so you can't add another disk to it, but you can add another VDEV. So if you create a RAID Z of, you know, the, uh, of, of four two-terabyte drives, if you want to grow that system, you have to add a new VDEV, either uh, a mirror of two drives or another RAID Z or whatever. Um, but saying that, mixing and matching generally isn't great, right? Because uh, ZFS is going to stripe across each VDEV. Right? So if you have you know, a RAID Z1 and then a mirror, they're going to have kind of uneven performance because one VDEV, the mirror is going to be faster at reading and, and maybe a little slower at writing yeah, yeah. and so on. Yeah. So then, you're, then you're, uh, are you limited so then by the slowest drive? To, um, not entirely. Um, the algorithm is getting better such that you know, it'll notice, hey, this VDEV isn't working as hard as this one. Let's do more on this one. Okay. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times, it can only read the data from where it was written, right? So yeah, yeah. So yeah, in general, you're you're limited by this the speed of the VDEV, and so ZFS was designed as an enterprise file system. So you know, it was designed for a sunbox where you just have 48 identical hard drives. Right. Yeah. 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 And if you treat it like that, you'll get great results. Yeah. Uh, so ZFS originally was designed where it was. Cost you is know, not really we, a consideration. We have enterprise amounts of money. We yeah. just need to be able to solve this problem. Right, exactly. 
Uh, it's, so, it's, a, yeah. it's one of those things where, like, if you want to add drives, go for it. Probably want to add at least two at a time. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it, it's kind of difficult to, to adjust the pool after. Uh, I have some notes written down from when I did the crazy thing of upgrading a Z1 to a Z2 by pushing all the data to certain drives and then pushing it back to a new pool. Mm-hmm. Basically having to back up everything and then restore it, mm-hmm. uh, but done kind of differently. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll try to publish that sometime. I've got to find time to put it all together into a coherent thing. But yeah, looking at his mixed match of drives, it's kind of icky. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, originally, my first ZFS install was uh, a 300 gig, a 320 gig, and two 1.5 terabyte drives, just striped across, uh, so no redundancy, all the drives, all the space. And it works. Uh, but if a drive dies, yeah. you're in serious pain. Yeah. Um, and also the performance isn't great because more data gets written to the bigger drives because ZFS's goal is to make all the drives get to 100% full at the same time. So, the small, so you know, if, if you have two 2-terabyte two drives and a 500-gig drive, each of the 2-terabyte drives is going to get written to 4 kilobytes for every 1 kilobyte that gets written to the 500-gig, the so they fill up at the same time. So when you're reading back, that means you have to read more data from the 2-terabytes because, you know, more 4 times as much data is written yeah. there. yeah. And uh, so you might not actually be using, getting all the performance out of the 500 gig drive that you could be. And that's why I rebuilt my array with all similar sized drives. So it was important enough to you that you went through the trouble. Yes, well, also I need more room. And <laughs> yeah. I wanted redundancy because <laughs> that those, 300 gig drives, those 300 gig drives were old and we're going to die. <laughs> Got to do it um, anyways. <laughs> as far as getting towards the Drobo type features, um, it's not finished yet, but OpenZFS is working on the ability to remove a device. So, you know, if you created, you know, one of those crazy pools and you had enough free space, you could remove something in order to actually mm. move around things. That is very nice. Yes. Uh, but again, that's still kind of designed where you, you know, because actually you ran into this problem, right? You had a, a big RAID Z and then you added a two-disc mirror to the end of it and weren't happy with that. And well, one of the no drives died in that, that mirror and I had to remove yeah. that mirror from the pool. Um, and, and there's no way to actually remove a VDEV from the pool until this new feature comes up. Yeah, it was kind of wonky, but I managed to make it work. Uh, all right, well, Alan F. writes in. He says, hi, friends. While we can admit that ZFS is the best current file system for data storage, how does it work in a distributed file system? Can you have a data center of FreeBSD machines with ZFS and have it be distributed? Is that concept even necessary with Z? He actually wrote out Z. Uh, I know Alan hasn't tried it, but could Z, he wrote out Z again. Could Z be used in conjunction with something like Ceph or Swift to distribute the data? As far as I can tell, neither one of these are a file system. Can Z not directly run on GNU slash Linux because of license issues, or is it something like a kernel issue? Best, Alan F. So distributed. There's lots of arguments of whether ZFS on Linux is a violation of anything. Uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories that spearheads the ZFS on Linux project doesn't think it's a problem. And um, if I recall correctly, Stallman and Linus don't think it's a problem. But some of the really diehard GNU people think it's a problem. Wait a minute. Are you telling me there is a potential reality where we could just have ZFS baked into the Linux kernel? Uh, not baked in, no. Okay. I don't think. Okay. All right, because I was about to I don't flip actually the table. Know. All right, okay. But uh, 
Yeah, the, the point of the OpenZFS project is to try to get the Linux version of ZFS to be standardized like the FreeBSD and the Lumos ones. So what about this whole distributed nature where maybe you have like a bunch of one virtual network-wide file system? Yeah, uh, I've never used a distributed file system, but ZFS can expose your space as a block device called the ZVOL, uh, V-O-L. So oh, yeah. yes, you can, you can create a block device and give that, give, you know, block device on each of five um, ZFS machines and create a distributed file system or use Swift or AFS or what was the other one you mentioned? SFS or something or, or whatever uh, you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. What was the other one you mentioned? Um, but you know, or NFS. Yeah. <laughs> Just do it uh, all over NFS. <laughs> and, and you know, you can expose I use those ZVOLs for virtualization, right? So whether yeah, it's VirtualBox exactly. or yeah. Beehive, I create a ZVOL and say, Hey, this, this is the disk image instead of a file on the file system. It's a block device. Yeah, that seems like the practical so use right there. That's cool. That's a nice feature, and, really. Uh, um, as far it depends what your goal with the distributed system is. If uh, I think somebody in the chat room, we might have actually been the guy that asked the question, was like, you know, he works for in the audio industry. Audio was it audio or auto? One of the two. Either makes cars or sound, uh, and they have like eight hundred terabytes of data. Ooh. And so, yes, I understand that might be difficult to put in one machine. Yeah. Although, not really. You, you create a bunch of JBODs and then you get two heads and do SCSI multipath and you, you can put that in one machine. Or actually, it's two machines tending to be one. But, uh, you know, if you, if you need to use or want to use a distributed file system, it is possible to do it with ZFS underneath. There you go. Uh, separately, um, FreeBSD has another feature called HAST, or High Availability Storage technology that allows you to uh to like it's kind of like uh drdb right having uh multiple machines represent the same single block device so that it's redundant mm -hmm. all right uh, alan but generally i just use zfs replication and have it be asynchronous rather than synchronous all right. I, I, there was one last uh message that i really wanted to get to this week and i just forgot it but he's actually here live today so let's see if we can answer this before we run. Um, sure. he, he, he wrote this up on the TechSnap subreddit over at uh, TechSnap or links.techsnap.tv. He said, I have some questions for you guys and the rest of the community. I've been listening to most of the JB shows for a few months now, though I'm burning through the backlog pretty quick. I found uh, the network through Coda Radio. Shout out to Mike, who actually just hired him as a part-time dev. That's cool. I'm quite enjoying Last and Unplugged and TechSnap as well. He says, I'm a 24-year-old 24 24 sysadmin who's just above water, professionally speaking. I'm an admin of 20 or 30 servers, almost all of which are Windows boxes. My company also has end-user support and off-the-street warranty repair. It's a bit of a weird mix that I think, uh, you know, could be separated out in different departments. He says, I'm quite tired of doing end-user stuff, and I hate dealing with clients who don't know what they're doing or talking about. I'm actually, I actually don't mind server admin as part of the job. I just feel embarrassed at the state of the network. I inherited. I started a very slow transition to the world of Unix by setting up a grand total of one production LAMP server. I've been stuck in a rut for the past month or so, hating my job more and more and feeling on the edge of being burned out in general. I just had the realization today that I need to take responsibility for my own happiness in my job and my career. While I'm still actively looking for a new job and more Linux-oriented admin in a bigger shop, I figured I should make the time I have left as good as it can be and coincidentally help the company I work for as well. Well, good, good on you, man. Good, good uh, mm -hmm. outlook on that. Uh, we're a pretty small shop. So here's a few things I need to accomplish before I leave. 
I want to somehow move away from end user support and focus on more server stuff. Okay, there's one question. Start the transition of some of the servers to Linux and or open source solutions uh, and maybe change the boss's mindset on solutions we have now. Fix some of the horrible security practices at our shop and maybe get and maybe get a raise out of some of this. Further my own knowledge and start working from home. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Do you have any, any advice? Working any from home is hard. <laughs> yeah. Very hard not to get distracted and very hard not to goof off and, I mean, and, I, and actually get things done. I, so. hate, I hate to make this my answer, but security practices, transitioning to open source and working from home and getting more money, those are all culture things. Those are all things that, that, I mean, I realize you're trying to make while you're at the job a good experience until you leave, but yeah, you need to leave. Like, that's all, I, 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 dude, I have, I have, I have, it is not worth your life energy to try to bend a company to your will because there are yeah, other like, companies if, out there. If they don't want to, if they don't want to pay attention to security, it's really hard to make them. Yeah. Uh, like, I've, I've pointed it out quite a few times now, but uh, there's the video from uh, BSD can about uh, converting a Linux shop to FreeBSD. Uh, the same concepts would apply for converting Windows to, to open source kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, there's kind of gives you the idea of, of what you have to do. But in the end, you have to convince them why they need to do it. Yeah. And if you can't, then they're never going to. So the only way you can accomplish something like this in a company is if you are seen as like some sort of advocate of change and that you people, people follow you because it's not just an advocate of change because people hate change. Yeah. Oh, right. It's more that we need to do this in order to accomplish some goal. Yeah. uh, That is really, really important. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's certain things you're going to be able to, you you might be able to get them to move the meter on A, a few things like, yeah, uh, like what I I, like, I was. Our Windows servers need to be replaced. Yeah, and we can replace five of these with only two. Right, and previous and you can show licensing cost differences. Yeah. You can show you can you can do performance. You know, you there's there's ways you can make a monetary argument for something, and that's usually a but pretty in safe. The bet. end, a lot of times they'll be like, sure, using open source is, is less license cost, but you know it's going to take you longer to set it up, or there's going to be this. Conversion yeah. phase. The truth about and licenses is businesses, I mean, it is a huge pain in the ass to manage, especially at larger scales. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a one-time purchase. And it is, only a, it, is, it is only a factor in the overall total cost of ownership. I know that sounds like a Microsoft talking point, but it is true. Um, it, it doesn't generally get them to sway too far one way or the other. But if you can make it as part of an overall case, you might see some progress there. I mean, push forward for sure. Absolutely. And if you'd like to help them out, Go over to links.techsnap.tv. There's already a good thread that's been started up about people that are weighing in with their thoughts and things like that. Um, uh, you know, I'll just give you this. I've worked in companies where I've tried to make some of these changes. I have been successful to a degree. I also then exposed myself politically vulner- and to a vulnerability of when things didn't go right. Blame Chris. And yep. at the end of the day, you want to work with people who get it. because. If you're working with people who don't get it, then you're always going to be fighting something. So I think you have a great attitude. Make the best of it while you can. I totally understand where you're coming at about being burnt out on end user support and wanting to focus on servers. I mean, I totally grok that. Let me ask you but this, though. Unless there's somebody else that's going to do the end user support, I don't see how they're going to let you do that. If you Do you find yourself getting... So I know, even though I don't really like doing end user support, when I solve the problem and walk away with them being happy, that feels good. Like... 
like that'll make my that'll make a bad day. Like if when I had when I was a contractor and I'd had like disaster after disaster that I was having to deal with. I if I then like broke it up with some what at first glance seem like menial end user tasks. Like I've got an exchange server that just ate itself and this user wants me to help them get flash working. At first glance, that seems like a massive misbalance of priorities and it can be very frustrating and stressful. However, the 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 reward like the dopamine that my brain squirts, that my you know that goes into my blood system, my bloodstream, like that made me feel better. Like I fixed their problem, and they appreciated that I fixed their problem. So sometimes you can find some reward from end user support if you can find that. That'll help you get through it a little bit. That's my advice to you: is focus on the aspects of it, the, the interaction, the conversation, the solving problems for them, showing them maybe how to do something a little bit better. And even if they're all dumb and they never get it, even if after a million times, maybe you've just moved them forward a little bit, it's still some sort of accomplishment that you can, you know, at least walk away with. So Zach finishes off this week. He says, uh, hi, Chris and Alan. Now he wrote in a couple of weeks ago where he was kind of just exasperated at his job situation and wasn't sure where to take it next. He says, I just wanted to update you on that interview I told you about. It actually occurred during last week's episode of TechSnap. He said, here's the details. He links this. And he said, it went well. He got the gig. He said they're a bunch of geeks and huge Star Trek fans, so that's pretty awesome, too. Um, He says when you, uh, by the way, when you enter their office, the sliding glass door makes a sound as the doors (laughs) slide open. (laughs) That's great. I got to go work there. So congratulations. He's going to be working 12-hour shifts four days a week, um, and uh, he's going to enjoy the work a lot more. So glad to hear that, Zach. And and you know, it's nice to get updates, follow-ups. We got a couple of follow-ups this week from folks. Follow-ups are good. All this talk about ZFS, or I guess I should say ZFS, you might be ready to step up. And if you're ready to step up in the business or where you're responsible for maintaining lots of systems, I want to point you over to IX Systems. Go to IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That's where you go to support this show. And that's their landing page to give you real quick access to the white paper that's going to help you grease the wheels in your organization. IX Systems builds machines that work great for solutions like Jupyter Broadcasting, you know, a small business, all the way up to huge incredible petabyte systems storage and servers driven by open source they have people at the beginning of the process all the way to the end of the process we're intimately familiar with the technology they work in the community they reach out to individual community members they sponsor open source projects bring them in under their umbrella and make sure they can get their work done ix systems is an incredible company that makes incredible machines if you've got a workload in your business check out ix systems at ixsystems.com slash any of them from file storage to compute I mean, the entire range, they're going to have you covered. And here's something we don't often mention in these spots, but it's kind of a pro tip, like an IX Systems pro tip, is uh, they have a YouTube channel. Now, maybe they don't want me making a big stink about this, because it's not like they're updating it all the time. It's not like it's a huge outlet for them, but there is some really good stuff on their YouTube page. You can find it at youtube.com slash IX Systems. Have you been wondering about the difference between FreeNAS and TrueNAS? So what's the difference between FreeNAS and TrueNAS? Well, it's they have a video on that, actually. It's a common question and one that we get asked a lot. So let's walk through them both together and get it answered for you. So they have a whole bunch of that. I mean, that's just a small example of some of the things they have on their YouTube channel, and it might be worth your time to go check them out. Also, don't forget they got their Mission Complete contest going on. You can find out more on their blog about that. And if you're at scale, be sure you say hi to the folks at IX Systems, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go check them out and see why Mr. Jude and I are only using IX Systems. I, I fantasize about that 24 terabyte free NAS that is an Amazon Prime wish list away, or, or click, wish, add, 
It's on my wish list, theoretically. They sell them on Amazon Prime is what I'm saying. Uh, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. All right. I can't avoid it. It's the issue in the room. If you want to get into ZFS or ZFS, how do you set up your pools? How do you do it correctly? And is ZFS fragmentation actually a problem? These are questions that came in that we tackle next. Uh, so Danny writes in with our obligatory ZFS question. He says, "Hey guys, I keep up the great and keep up the great work." He says he really enjoys the show. I'm looking to putting together a ZFS-based NAS for a home use, and I was looking for some guidance on configuring the pools. Initially, I'll have four two terabyte disks in the NAS, and I'll expand as it becomes necessary. And well, funds allow. I've been I've been doing some reading and finding split opinions on whether to use RAID Z2 or mirrored pools. Could you throw in your two cents in this discussion for a home NAS? What would be the benefits or actually the drawbacks of using a mirrored pool versus a RAID Z2? Would you recommend one over the other? Thanks for the help, Danny. Yep. Uh, in general, for that, especially if you have plans for expansion, I would say mirror sets are best uh, for a couple of reasons. If you do all four disks as a RAID Z2, then ideally, if you add more disks, you would have to add four more at a time. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you do that as mirrors, right, two two terabytes and a second two terabytes, you can always add two more disks. You can basically you can upgrade two disks at a time instead of four disks at a time, which is much more economical. Yes, and especially if you if you just happen to be starting with six disks, then two at a time instead of six at a time is a much... Now, you don't have to add you know, the same size as your original, but you don't want to mix types. So if you start with RAID Z, all of your groups should be RAID Z. They don't have to be the same size, but they should all be RAID Z. Um, when, when you only have four disks, uh, RAID Z and MIR both have the same amount of usable space. And so the fact that mirrors are faster kind of, it's like, well, why would I do RAID Z2 when it, you know, normally the reason for RAID Z and RAID Z2 is that it's more space for the same money compared to mirrors. But with four disks, that's not true. Um, the only advantage to RAID Z2 in the four disk case is it means you can lose any two drives. Whereas with the mirror sets, you have two drives as one mirror and two drives as a second mirror. You can lose two disks as long as they're not both from the same set. Right? So, uh, you know, RAID Z2 might be slightly less likely to lose your data, but as long as you're really only worried about losing one drive at a time, then it doesn't actually uh, make a difference there. Uh, so mirrors would be better. Uh, you'll get more IOPS uh, and, and performance from mirrors, especially your read speed uh, will be higher. Um, and you'll be able to add two drives at a time, which is better. Yeah. Also, it means for upgrading, you'll get the benefits sooner. So eventually you're going to run out of slots in your NAS, right? You only have so many SATA ports and only room for so many drives in the chassis. Um, whether that's, you know, eight, uh, six or eight or 10 or whatever. Um, when you do hit it, your option for upgrading then is to replace all the disks in a group with bigger disks, right? So, you know, when you start it, you bought with four two terabyte drives. When you do your next upgrade, that might be four terabyte drives. And then when you do your upgrade after that, maybe it's six terabyte drives, right? Uh, and then you're out of slots. So then you've bought two new eight terabyte drives. So you would just replace one at a time your two terabyte drives with these eight terabyte drives and you would just get, oh look, six terabytes more space. Great. Um, if you do RAID Z, then you would have to upgrade the four or more however are in your group at a time. So if you only bought two disks at a time, you'd upgrade two of the disks and get no benefit until you upgraded the other two. Right, and that's the key thing. Yeah, and the other thing with the mirrors is means uh, with RAID Z, they all have to be the same size. 
uh, with mirrors, only the two in each pair have to, right? So you, you can get away with doing, uh, you know, two twos, two twos, and then two threes, and then two fours, and two fives, or whatever. Uh, whereas with RAID Z, you need four drives of the same size, uh, at least for each group. That seems pretty, actually, when you break it down like that, mm-hmm. that seems pretty obvious. So, uh, yes. Well, basically, mirrors are always better, but at some point, mirrors cost more money because yeah. you only get half the space out of each drive, whereas with RAID Z, you only lose one or two or three drives out of each set, which could be, you know, eight or ten drives or whatever. Uh, all right. Are you ready for the next one? Um, if it's one other thing for that, mirror. Oh, also, if you're really paranoid, you can actually do deeper mirrors. So you can have mirror sets where there are three drives in each mirror. Uh, which will give you even more read speed, but waste even more hard drives, basically. Ooh, interesting. But yes, you can get really high read speeds. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although is, your write speed doesn't scale up because you right. have to write all the data every yeah. drive. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, some data is that important that you want to have three copies of every byte. Well, or, you know, actually when you said, I'm, of course, I can't help but make it about me. Uh, I was thinking about for editing, the reading for when you're rendering and, and applying effects, the reading it's is so critical. All over, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So Although I'm still I'm, I'm building a future the, system, Alan. I'm yes. building. Depending on the size of your setup, uh, you solve that with ZFS with the Arc, so you can keep like 60 gigs of files in RAM. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Nothing's yeah. faster than RAM, right? Uh, yeah, oh gosh. Or, or you have an L2 Arc SSD, right? So even though you have lots of these, like you know, you filled the machine with five terabyte spinning drives because you need that much space. Yeah. yeah. You have this, you know, 500 gig SSD that keeps the right. file you're working on right. all on an SSD. Right. So it's really the, fast. The quote unquote episode that's being edited. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or, you know, technically it'd be your working set. But yes, the episode being edited would all reside on that SSD temporarily. Mm-hmm. And then you would get that performance boost without having to build your entire storage array out of SSDs. Alan, our first email this week comes in from Raul. I think that's it. Raul? How do you suppose you say that? I'm going to go with Raul. Uh, he says, hi there, Chris and Alan. I wonder if you could break down the ZFS fragmentation issue for me, which is interesting. I actually got this question in the IRC this morning as well. He says, when is ZFS fragmentation problematic? What can I do about it? And when will ZFS get block pointer rewrite features? Thanks a lot and keep up the great work. Gre- greetings from Switzerland, where he has gigabit internet for $70 nice. a month with no limits. Wow. <laughs> uh, so when is it problematic? Mostly when your disk is full. Uh, so when your disk is very full, there's, and you want to say write a 128 kilobyte chunk uh, to your disk, and there are no 128 kilobyte chunks of free space. You know, your disk is almost all the way full, and so the free space is scattered in a bunch of smaller pieces. And so ZFS has to scan all of its lists of free space and try to find the biggest chunk, mm-hmm. and then stick the first chunk of your file there, and then it grabs, then it looks for the next biggest chunk and sticks there, and and it can cause to slow down quite a bit. Uh, things you can do about it are, A, not fill your file system. Uh, if you can keep at least, you know, 25-30% free space, then you're a lot less likely to run into this issue. Um, if you need to completely solve the issue, you can send all your data off, uh, wipe it out, and uh, send it back. Uh, and that will So basically it. wipe clean, write, and re- yeah. write the data back, and you're back mm-hmm. to a zero-fragmented fragmented file system? Right. Although uh, ZFS has improved in this uh, regard quite a bit recently with things like the uh, free space histograms Hmm. and the ZFS write performance and other stuff. Um, ZFS is now smarter and it can look up where the free space is a lot faster. Hmm. Uh, And so it can deal with the problem a lot better than it used to. 
but obviously, you know, it doesn't actually solve the problem. It just deals with it in a less bad way. Hmm. Uh, so yes, uh, if you have the problem, the best way to solve it is get more free space uh, by either deleting stuff, although that doesn't quite solve the fragmentation as much. It depends how fragmented the stuff you're deleting is and how, you know, if you, if you have a fragment of free space, a chunk of file, and a fragment of free space, and you get rid of that chunk of file, that free space is now bigger, which is good. Uh, but if there's little bits left on either end or whatever, then it's you know, mm-hmm. just as fragmented. Mm-hmm. But if you expand the thing by, you know, if you're using mirror sets and you add a whole new VDEV full of uh, completely virgin free space, no more fragmentation problem for a little while until that space is all used up mm. or fragmented and so on. Uh, and then when will ZFS get block pointer rewrite? Probably never. Uh, you know, Matt Aaron says the, it's basically like trying to change your pants while running and he doesn't think it's actually going to be possible. And that's why you've seen a lot of the recent work, like the things to be able to remove a, a device from, uh, remove a VDEV from your pool uh, because it, it has to do it a different way because block pointer rewrite is not something that is probably actually going to be possible. Mm, okay. Uh, it was part of the original design, yeah. uh, but there was a bunch of factors they failed to consider when they did the design. Oh. And as they got towards implementing it, it was like, oh, this design probably isn't going to work. Okay. That is really interesting. Fascinating to learn. It's interesting listening to that ZFS fragmentation question because that was actually something that just came up on a recent Linux Unplugged. I want to say it was episode 124. I might have the number wrong now, but we were discussing ButterFS and ZFS for home usage and which one might be a better file system and fragmentation, surprise, surprise, in 2016 is an issue that still comes up. And so if you're curious about that, go check out Linux Unplugged where we discuss that uh, from a home user's perspective. If you're a home user, if you're a business, if you're an enthusiast, a developer, a one-man, uh, one-man project, or, or, or one lady project, let's be honest, I recommend you check out DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and try out their services two months for absolutely free when you use the promo code SNAPOcean. SNAPOcean supports the show and gives you a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean, which is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own rig up in the cloud. And you can get started in less than 55 seconds. And their pricing plans start at $125 a month. What? No. $40 a month. What? No. $20 a month. What? No, not even that. $5 a month. $5 a month if you act now. I'm trying to do the infomercial thing. But it's $5 a month. If you use the promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. You can try that $5 rig two months for free. Because that's math. Here's what you get. For $5 a month. I mean, less than you can get a large onion ring at Burger King? I, I don't know. But definitely not a soft taco at Taco Time. Definitely not that. For $5 a month, 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, because they are all SSDs. One CPU and a terabyte of transfer. DigitalOcean, is Alan around here? They're using Linux for the KVM virtualizer, okay? But you can deploy FreeBSD if you want. I mean, if you roll like that. Now, I don't know if you do, but you might. Also, did you know all of their systems have SSDs? Because even before DigitalOcean got off the ground, they're like, you know what we got to do? We got to have tier one bandwidth. So they get 40 gigabit E connections into their hypervisors. We got to have absolute best performance IO. So they go all SSDs. Then they set up data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany. So they're just all over the place. You can pick one closest to you. And then they bring it all together with an incredible interface. I mean, it is really good, you guys. And they keep improving it. It is truly the best interface to manage virtual machines I have ever seen. And then on top of all of that, they have a fantastic API. Very straightforward, lots of open source code already written around this API. So if you know what you're doing, you can totally take advantage of it. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can just take advantage of something that's already been written. 
You can deploy machines in a single click with just the base OS or an entire software stack. Of course, they've got Ubuntu, CentOS, Debian, Fedora, CoreOS, and FreeBizzle. It's really a great service. I've got a lot of rigs up there. I just recently rescued a rig after, uh, after a little negligence on my part, I'll be honest. Uh, I was able to use their HTML5 console to watch it post, boot all the way up, log in, and recover my network stack. It was very nice. It's, and really, it doesn't take a lot of time because their interface is so simple and straightforward. Go check them out and try them. DigitalOcean.com. And remember, use that promo code, SNAPOcean. Give you the $10 credit and you support the TechSnap program. Yeah, keep us going. Go over to digitalocean.com right now, use the promo code SNAPOcean, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So, some of you are trying to break into the industry. You're trying to get a job. Maybe you're trying to get a new job. So, we've got probably, I don't know, once a month we get this question, but this next one that came up was pretty great. Uh, he was Already kind of in the field, but he was interested in advancing his career. So he drops out of college. He has approximately 10 years of IT experience, and he wants our help in where to go next. We take that question. So uh, Jeff writes into the show. He needs help finding his dream job, and he's a former student of Mr. Alan Jude. He says he's been listening to TechSnap and other Jupiter Broadcasting shows since college, counting my high school co-ops, unpaid work and IT positions for school credit, and my post-secondary education. I have approximately 10 years of experience in basic computer support, hardware configuration, upgrade, system maintenance, Windows repair, install, virus removal, basic server and network administration, bash scripting, Linux, Unix stuff, simple programming, website administration, etc. I'm nearly 30 years old and I'm currently working as a level one technical support at a call center. I'm very interested in advancing my career and moving up in the IT field, possibly working as a junior server admin or junior network admin, or eventually moving up to the position of senior admin. The glitch is this. I dropped out of college. Don't get me wrong. Alan is a great teacher. It was my fault that I dropped out. I was a slacker. So I have no graduation certificate or bachelor's degree or anything like that. I also do not have any certificates from CompTIA or Microsoft or any industry standard certs. My question is this. Do you, Alan or Chris, have any advice for a skilled geek looking to advance his career? Are certs needed? And if so, which ones? Where should I focus my efforts? Sysadmin, network admin, server admin, developer? How do I market myself to get the best jobs? I feel job satisfaction, the challenge of working on a long-term project, the people I work with, and the overall work environment is important, is more important than the number of zeros on my paycheck. So, too long, did not read. What advice do you have to help tech geeks find their dream job? He's a big fan of JB and he appreciates everything we do, wants us to keep up the great work. And I have to say, I think there's probably a lot of people in the audience that could be in his position right now. Yeah. Well, honestly, my first thing to say is you have to decide what your dream job would be. That was my reaction too. Uh, like he's like, he's not sure if he wants to be a sysadmin focusing on setting up servers and stuff develop, or network admin working on network routers admin. and yep. stuff yeah. or, or what he wants to do per se. Yeah. Uh, and so it helps to know there so you can focus. I think he's coming on, at it from the wrong area. end, right? He's, he's looking at it from like, well, what should I pick? And then I'll focus on, no, it's what captivates you and makes you want to put up with something that is otherwise extremely stressful, takes a ton of time, takes a lot of energy out of you. What is something that you want to specialize on? What's something that excites you? And until you find that, you're not going to find that, that track that you can lock into and really accelerate. And I think it's more important these days than ever to sort of specialize a bit. Um, yeah, like when I first started, I, I thought I wanted to be a developer and then 
in high school, I did a, a work placement and I worked at the power plant yeah. and I kind of got exposed to this whole sysadmin stuff, setting up servers and stuff. And I was like, that's kind of more interesting to me. Yeah. And also all the programming I know I taught myself, whereas the server admin stuff, I would need a bunch of servers. So I ended up going to school for server stuff because that way I would have access to all those machines and, and learn it and everything. Uh, but yeah, it's like the thing that's always uh, kind of excited me was, all right, well, we got this bunch of servers and we need to put them together and make them do something. Yeah. And so, you know, as, as much as it was stressful last week, uh, setting up 32 new servers in a day and a half, uh, that's what I like to do. Yeah, and that I, was. I actually had quite a bit of fun doing it. We should have even mentioned if it that was under uh, uh, quite the pressure. Well, we talked a bit about on TechSnap last week, I think. No, but, I don't think so. I don't think we ever talked about it on the show. I we meant to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so but yeah, we had to. Uh, um, we had a big uh, event last weekend, live streaming event uh, from one of our customers. Scale Engine did. did. Yeah, yeah, at Scale and, Engine. But you were here in capacity. you were here in Washington. Well, yeah. So we got told on like Saturday of last week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So not sorry, not last Saturday, the Saturday before that. Uh, that oh, we're gonna have this giant event and we need a lot more gigabits. Uh, so on Monday we got everything finalized and and signed the papers and ordered thirty two new servers from a uh, rented thirty two new servers from various locations around the United States to support this load. And uh, they finally started getting delivered because we put a rush on some of them, paid extra to get them set up like same day or next day as opposed to usually it's like three to five days. Sure. Uh, and I kind of enlisted Price TX to help me set them all up because it was a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and we kind of pounded I, through it. I'm and, pretty impressed though because like you were, you were still managing that event <clears throat> while you were here. Well, yeah, the, the crazy thing was, so I started ordering Monday. By Monday night, the, some of them had started arriving, so I was setting them up, and I enlisted Price to help me. But we ran into a snag. Some of them had newer IPMI firmware, and they didn't like the FreeBSD 9.2 CD. Oh. Uh, because the USB on the newer firmware took longer to be recognized and wasn't picking it up properly. So I had to create this crazy monstrosity special ISO image that was... FreeBSD 9.3 super pre-release, but <laughs> installs FreeBSD 9.2. And then that didn't work because it installed it with, uh, when the, when you're, cause you were booted into 9.3, it created a ZFS pool with newer features than 9.2 could use. So then I had to do all more hacking and eventually came up with this ISO image that worked. Uh, and then I was like, I have to go to bed, but I emailed Price. I'm like, here's a bunch of the credentials and, uh, the disk image, if you could get started on some of these before I'm awake, that'd be great. <laughs> and uh, then more machines came in that, on Tuesday morning and Price and I worked on it right until bedtime on Tuesday night. We had to fly uh, out. Yeah, and then Wednesday morning, one more server got delivered and I was like frantically trying to do that and then get out the door in time to get to the airport and then there was traffic and I was like, ah. <laughs> but I finally oh, got there and then uh, Wednesday, it, hacked on a little bit and the event started on Thursday uh, which was kind of unusual normally they're just like Saturday Sunday maybe a bit on Friday but this one started on the Thursday well and we of course and then, we're having an internet outage yeah uh, I go to bed and wake up Thursday morning there's no internet and then even my phone didn't want to connect I think because everybody was using their phone to get on the internet yep because Comcast had this huge outage and yep. it was crazy yeah yeah the whole wireless network got saturated but yeah uh, uh, everything went fairly smoothly uh, we had one little issue where the new servers weren't in one of our inventory systems and so uh 
in one of our logging fields, it wasn't when there was a problem, it wouldn't say which server because it didn't know which server was which. <laughs> Other than that, pretty smooth, huh? Good. Yeah. All right. uh, but anyway, back to the question the guy was asking. Uh, you really have to decide what you like. Do you like being a network admin? Do you like working with Cisco stuff? Because you know, there's plenty of jobs in that. You can specialize in working on Cisco stuff. Or do you like server admin, right? And like even on server admin, do you like Windows? Or do you want to do Linux? Or do you want to do BSD? You uh, and that really that. affects which search you should look at as yep, well. Yep. And then developer is a completely different thing. And then there's this crazy bastardization in between called DevOps. But I think that's a bad thing, mostly. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a developer that thinks they know how to be a sysadmin. Or they're, or they're being forced or into the other it. way around. Yeah, basically, yeah. It's, it's the word for a developer who doesn't have a sysadmin and has to do it themselves. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, having that flex, you know, I've been fairly useful in the past because on top of being a server admin, I can do some development in PHP or whatever. Uh, but, and, you know, just help, even if it's other programmers that are doing it, help mold the way they build the application so it'll scale properly and, and you know, so that it takes into consideration what the operational requirements are going to be. Very much. Uh, but yeah, so you, uh, not us, have to decide what you want to focus on. As far as certifications go, don't spend too much money. Um, most times they're not that big of a deal. Uh, <laughs> some specific jobs will have like be specific to a certain certification, but if you haven't decided if you want to be a sysadmin or a developer yet, then spending time on certifications is probably not a great idea. Cart before the horse there. Yeah, like, well, I think it was uh, at Linux Fest, Noah was talking about his like Red Hat cert ended up costing like $3,000 or whatever. I'm like, the, the BSD cert cost $75 at a conference or... Mm. Or maybe it's $150 at a conference or like twice that to take it at a learning center. It's like, it's, it's designed to be cheap. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of times they're just looking that, oh, you have some, so that's an extra thing over somebody else. Right. But, you know, the, the experience usually counts for more. Yes. All right, Alan, brace yourselves, because this one comes from John from Canada. He says, hi, Alan and Chris. I wrote to you guys a couple weeks ago about my FreeNAS build, and I had another question I was hoping you could shed some light on. From what I understand, the reason that ZFS hasn't been brought into the Linux kernel is that the CDL, the CDDL license is incompatible with the GPL, and thus they cannot be compiled together into a single binary, like most file systems are on Linux. If we want to, if we want to, Z, if we want ZFS, we need to run it as a kernel module, and therefore... It hasn't seen widespread adoption. My question is, why is this a problem for Linux, but not for BSD? Is the BSD license somehow more compatible with CDDL? Shouldn't the same problem arise in BSD, or is BSD structured in a different way that it's not a matter of the license at all? Also, are you familiar with how much of a problem it is not having ZFS in the kernel? Should it make a difference in the long run as to how stable ZFS is and has the ability to be run on Linux? Does Linux ever have hope of having top-notch ZFS support? Hope, uh, hope to keep enjoying the shows for a long time. John from Canada. Few questions in there for you, Alan. Right. So uh, the first one was CDDL and GPL compatibility. Originally, people thought no, that was just not never going to work. Uh, and at some point, uh, the ZFS on Linux people said, actually, we think it's fine. And then the Debian people, who are very strict about licensing stuff, decided that it was actually fine. Uh, or probably more likely, decided they really, really want ZFS. <laughs> Um, and so uh, Debian and Ubuntu will be getting ZFS uh, in a more mainstreamy way. So currently what you have to do is get the ZFS, source, ZFS on Linux source code from zfsonlinux.org and compile it on your own system. Uh, and then 
it's okay because you're not distributing a binary of it already set up, mushed together or whatever. Uh, and the problem with that is when you update your kernel, all of a sudden that ZFS module you have is not the same version and it won't work right. and you won't be able to access your files until you recompile ZFS. Yep. And uh, you know, if you're booting off ZFS, that's a big deal. So you probably don't want to boot off ZFS on Linux. Um, so then, uh, so what Ubuntu is going to do with their next release is have, what is it called? D- DKMS. DKMS, which basically means when you install a kernel update, it will automatically compile the newer ZFS for you and install it as part of the update. Uh, then in the version of uh, Ubuntu after that, they'll actually be having uh, the full thing and having uh, ZFS as a module that Ubuntu and, will And we believe this whatever. is possible because of maybe some some uh, stuff that the Debian lawyers have been looking at, something to this degree, well, right? I don't know. It kind of boils down to I don't think anybody's 100% sure, and they've just decided it's worth the risk now. I don't know. Yeah, maybe um, to be competitive, yeah. Uh, and, you know, also, uh, it's interesting they're taking this approach. This has been the approach to, say, use ZFS in Arch for, for almost ever now, is just use DKMS. Uh, it's also, like, a lot of times the way rolling distributions handle things like VirtualBox uh, kernel modules and things like that. Just, you know, have DKMS rebuild them. And on a fast, you know, multi-core system, it takes 20 seconds to build the module, so it's not really well, a big ZFS deal. ZFS will take slightly longer than that. <laughs> I would imagine, but. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Uh, but, you know, like what Alan, is, what Alan is basically saying, though, is that there's just that tiny, tiny slice of reliability in that there's, there could be that delta between when you've updated your kernel and reboot and when that module gets built, if it's something doesn't build right or something like that, and you can't access your file system once you're running that new kernel. Uh, and so that's why a lot of people, right. what they'll so, do on Linux is they'll do a dedicated ZFS data set, and then their boot volumes are you know, things like Extended 4 or XFS or ButterFS, something right. like that. So in, in general, you basically... Uh, yeah, so if uh, Debian is basically solving this problem with either DKMS or actually bundling it properly. Uh, but yeah, it's a slight issue if you are just using the older way of doing it where you compile it by hand and add the thing. Uh, but... So your second part of the question you had was, why doesn't BSD have this problem? Well, uh, I, I suggest you go over to chooseadlicense.com and read the GPL3. Uh, and you will see that is many, 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 many pages, uh, including uh, there's some uh, specific language in here about combining things. Well, and the Linux kernel is under GPL2. Right, yes. So there's also the GPL2 on yeah, the page, yeah. uh, which is slightly fewer pages long, but... Uh, there are specific things about uh, combining copies uh, or combining different bits of software when they might have different licenses and so on. And that clause is the one that causes the problem, right? Uh, um, I don't remember the exact where in the license it is. But essentially... Ah. Part 10. Oh, okay. If you wish to incorporate parts of the program, being the Linux kernel, into other free programs with distribution conditions are different, uh, write to the author and ask for permission. Uh, for software which is copyrighted by the Free Software Foundation, write to the... Oh, that, that's not the right clause. Anyway, there's a clause in there that says you can't just mix the things together and it causes all these problems. Right, and the BSD right, license so, doesn't have that clause. Yeah, so if you read the, uh, the BSD license, which do they have it on here? I see they have the MIT one on here, but I don't see the BSD yeah. one on here, surprisingly, there which is. is... Oh, they do? You just have to get more oh, licenses. more licenses right. available. Yeah, okay. 
Uh, I will now read the entire BSD license verbatim. <laughs> Copyright by so-and-so, all rights reserved. Redistribution and use in source and binary forms, with or without modification, are permitted provided the following conditions are met. Redistribution of source code must retain the original uh, above copyright notice, this list of conditions, and the following disclaimer. Redistribution in binary form must reproduce the above copyright notice, this list of conditions, and the following disclaimer in the documentation and or other materials provided with the distribution. That's the whole license. Very simple. The uh, disclaimer at the end is, you know, this software is provided by the copyright holder and its contributors as is, and any express or implied warranties, including but not limited to the implied warranties of merchantability or fitness for a particular purpose, are disclaimed. Uh, in, no event, no, in no event shall the copyright holder or contributors be liable for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, exemplary, or uh, consequential damages, including but not limited to procurement of substitute goods or services, loss of use, loss of data, or loss of profits, or business interruption. However, uh, caused by any of these theory of liability, therefore, in contract, strict liability, or tort, blah, 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 blah. Basically... You can have all the BSD code and do whatever you would like with it, except for take the copyright off and please include a copy of the copyright notice in the documentation. And also don't sue us. <laughs> right. Very good. And literally that's it. So, you know, when Sony used giant chunks of FreeBSD to build the PlayStation 4, in the back of the manual and on a little website at sony.jp, you can find a list of the copyright messages off the files that they copied. And that's all they had to do. Uh, and so, yeah, we just bundle ZFS and it's fine. Although, when you're building FreeBSD, there's a big knob called without CDDL that will just avoid building all the CDDL bits like uh, hmm. ZFS and uh, Dtrace if you really don't want them because for whatever reason you don't accept the CDDL license or because you're mixing it with GPL or something. Hmm. But it's the same reason why uh, you know BSD is trying very hard to get rid of all the GPL bits in the base system so that people can build GPL-free appliances because of the restrictions in the GPL v2 and v3. You know, it's funny listening to that because as I record this, ZFS for Debian, ZFS, is in the staging repository, whatever they call it right now. It's like ready to be committed to Debian. So there has been a lot of changes in the last few months about ZFS and Linux. In 2016, is really going to be the year that Debian and Ubuntu and all of the derivatives therein get ZFS and, of course, all distros. Uh, and the file system game is changing up for Linux in 2016, and it's now interesting in retrospect listening to that question. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the TextNet program. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you like sort of the feedback-focused edition. This is our first pass at it, so we'd love to hear your feedback. We'd like to refine this because what our end goal is is to have something you guys like they can also be created when we have a lot of travel coming up. You know, this is a very unique situation where both Alan and I are on the road for three weeks. There is a moment of overlap where I'm back and he's gone and he's back and I'm gone. But the end result is we're out for three weeks and we wanted to do something that was both sustainable for us, but also enjoyable for you. So go to techsnap.reddit.com and let us know what you think. Don't forget jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. We'll always tell you when we're going to have live shows, and I'd really love to have you show up at jblive.tv to watch those live shows, because then you get to participate in the chat room, you get to see all the the in-between segments stuff, you get to give us additional feedback, and a lot of times I get up and go take a leak or get some water, and I just leave Alan's face up and make him talk to the chat room, and you get to just throw stuff, or vice versa, 
especially this week, it was vice versa. Sometimes I get left hanging while he goes out and, you know, does Canadian things. Probably eats Canadian bacon. I don't know. We also want your feedback over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown and send in your networking, your storage, your security, your infrastructure, your IT, sysadmin questions to us. The whole It's a systems network and administration podcast. That's a pretty big range of things. So send your questions and we'd love to answer them on a future edition of the TechSnap program. And like I just said a moment ago, techsnap.reddit.com to supply content to the show directly. It's like an IV from your brain into the TechSnap veins. Kind of. Maybe. Not sure about that. Anyways, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 